You're listening to the Sound Girls Podcast with Tori and Katie. Becky Pell is a sound engineer with 26 years experience in the live music industry. Her mixing credits include Westlife, Aha, Anastasia, Take That, The War of the Worlds, Muse, Kylie Minogue, Bill Wyman, James Brown, Jennifer Lopez, and Natalie Imbruglia. She has regularly been in charge of monitors on the main stage at the world's largest festival, Glastonbury, and writes a column for Live Sound International. Becky is also a qualified yoga therapist, holistic counselor, and mentor. And between tours, she runs yoga retreats. She is the author of Yoga Journey, a contemporary guide to a timeless tradition, published worldwide earlier this year. She is training as a touring mental health first aider and is passionate about making the touring industry more sustainable by taking care of the humans who make it happen. Becky, I prepared a question that is so stupid, but I think I'm so clever. So please entertain me. (laughs) Okay. Um, This is how the question goes. I planned this for like since the last time we were going to speak. Becky, can you please tell us about your roots, including your aha moment with audio? <laughs> wow. Wow, that's stupid, right? <laughs> Good one, because that's, yeah, that was an aha moment. <laughs> no, no one said that one before. Oh, then I'm the most clever you girl are. in the world. <laughs> most clever girl in the world. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I do want to know. I do want to know. Sorry, not to pat myself on the back too much. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so um basically when I was t- I was just kind of at the age where I was really getting into music and um I was 12 years old and I went to see uh, my favorite band at the time um at the Manchester Apollo uh which was a, a yeah a theater near in the town near where I grew up and I sat behind the front of house engineer and it suddenly dawned on me that um, you know, you could do this for a living, that there were actually people making this show happen. And, and it was a job. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so much better than a real job. I want to do that. Um, and I was fascinated and I didn't know whether to watch him or watch the band. And so that was that was it. That was all I wanted to do from the age of 12, which my teachers and, and folks probably thought was fairly obnoxious when I went into school the next day and said, I want to be a sound engineer. Um, do you mean a roadie? It's like, yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can be a chemical engineer or a, or an aeronautical engineer or you, you can't be a structural engineer. You can't be a sound engineer. It's like, yeah, I can. Watch me. And uh, yes, but in a very nice full circle moment, um, God, what would it have been? 18 years later, um, when I was 30, I got asked to mix monitors for that same band, which was Aha! Poetry. Oh, wow. oh, it's so perfect. That's perfect. So what happened in between? In between times. <laughs> well, um, I didn't have the first idea how to get into the music business. Um, so I kind of followed the usual path. I finished school. And then I discovered that there was a, a vocational college course uh, at a place called the School of Audio Engineering in London. And I was still living up in Manchester at the time. There's about... Um, it's about 200 miles between the two cities. I was 16, so I was kind of a bit too young to, to move to London by myself. So I enrolled on that course and was commuting down to London three times a week and um, felt really out of my depth. It was a, it was a studio-based course because that's all there was at the time. There were no live courses then. And everybody there was 
much older than me. Well, they seemed very grown up. They were probably only about 21. And they all seemed to have a lot of prior knowledge. You know, they'd been working with friends' bands and, and messing about in home studio setups and things. They knew a lot more than I did. And I was, I'd got, I'd been used to being really good at school. I found school quite easy. So I was kind of shocked to be this far out of my depth and be really bottom of the class. Um, but it wasn't put, I didn't put me off. It shocked me, but it, it, it kind of just made me more determined that I was going to figure this out. And then a studio college opened up in Manchester, which was where I was actually living. So I transferred there and graduated from there, I guess, 18, 18 months later, which was the School of Sound Recording. And that was, you know, great. It gave me a, a basis of the, you know, understanding of things like signal flow and, and you know, the, the, the basics of audio. But it was still, I wasn't any closer to, you know, being in a live scenario. And I got a couple of bits of work experience in studios, you know, clean, uh, cleaning tape heads, showing my age there. And, uh, <laughs> you know, making and sweeping the floor and all that kind of thing. Um, and I wrote to everybody in what was the industry Bible at the time was a book called, the, um, there were two books. There was one, the White Book and Showcase. And these were, you know, pre-internet. And these books had everybody's contacts in all of the companies that were the live music industry. So I wrote to everybody remotely audio related in there and, you know, hundreds and hundreds, possibly even thousands of, of you know, handwritten <laughs> letters sent by me. Oh, wow. I think I probably got about three replies and they were all no. <laughs> um, and then eventually I got hold of a copy of the Stage magazine. And in the back of there, there was an advert for a London PA company who were looking for an engineer. And I knew I was totally underqualified, but I applied anyway. And they called me and invited me down for an interview. And they said, yeah, you are completely underqualified, but... We're looking, we're looking for a kid. We're looking for an apprentice. Are you interested? And so, mm. I, you know, I obviously leapt at the chance. Didn't know if I'd got it. Got back on the train. I was still living up in Manchester at the time. Back on the train, got home that, that evening and they called me back and said, um, we want you to, to work with us. You start in five days. I was like, yes, fantastic. Crap, I live 200 miles away. Whoops. <laughs> 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 scrambled and um made it happen and yeah that was uh that was my education really in getting into the live music world you know I walked in there thinking I probably knew quite a lot having done a college course um and then realized within about the first 15 minutes that I didn't know anything <laughs> um, of course <laughs> so so that was a real education but it was fantastic because I got a really good ground up um training in in all of the different aspects of live sound and I think I you know I still think it's a fantastic way to get into the industry is is to do an apprenticeship or you know to start a, right at the bottom with a PA company because you really do learn your craft and yeah I was there for five years and then went freelance and the rest is history wow. <laughs> the rest is history <laughs> And, and I love that, you know, you had so many no's, you had so many rejections, but that didn't stop you. And then once you got your one yes, you, you know, you just went for it. Yeah. Like you didn't care that you live 200 miles away. It was like, this is your dream and you're going for it because this is your chance. Oh yeah. Once I got like even the slightest bit of a foot in the door, that door was not closing again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, there was a, it was a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of lot of rejection, and, and at the time, you know, there were virtually no women in the industry. You know, I, I certainly didn't know of any. You know, I think Car Carrie 
was about and, and Michelle and, and maybe, you know, a few others, but not, not that I had ever known of. So it was it was really unusual to, to have a woman applying for these kinds of roles. So I'm sure a lot of people just, you know, saw my name and looked no further because it was not what women were doing. But um, no, you know, thanks to the forward thinking folks at RG Jones, that was they decided to to be forward thinking and a bit radical. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, how was it being not good at it in the beginning? How did you uh, keep going? Really hard. Yeah, it didn't come naturally. It really didn't. And I had to work at it. Things didn't naturally make sense to me and things that seem totally logical and obvious to me now, I really struggled to get my head around. I was very lucky to have a couple of people, a few people at RG Jones who were kind and patient and um, taught me how things went together and, and, you know, answered my really really dumb questions without making me feel really dumb. (laughs) (laughs) There's no such thing as a dumb question, I always say. So I'm curious. So you started out with not much experience. You had the school side, but obviously your resume is quite large. How, like, how did those opportunities come about? It was just a kind of progression, I suppose. Um, Because I'd had, you know, a very solid grounding, spent five years at a PA company, and had worked my way up there. When I went freelance, there were other PA companies in London who, you know, it's a small industry. And, you know, people had seen me around on, on gigs with RG Jones. And, I, you know, I'd sort of become a, a reasonably familiar fixture. And so when I spoke to a company called Capital Sound Hire, who were uh, another London PA company when I went freelance. They were much more rock. RG Jones at the time wasn't really a rock and roll company. They do some touring now. They do Glastonbury. Um, but they weren't quite so music-based. It was more events. And they, they did music stuff for TV shows. And that was where I learned to do monitors. But um, I wanted to get into touring. So I, I spoke to the folks uh, at Capital Sound. And they took me on, on a few smaller jobs, like the way I worked, offered me um tech position on a black crows tour which was great because that was like okay now i'm now i'm touring with somebody who i've got one of their albums you know that was that was kind of (laughs) cool yeah the next thing i guess was they liked the way i worked on that so they put me on kylie minogue as a monitor tech so that was my first arena tour and so then i was mixing monitors for the support act for that and you know at the same time i was you know in between this i've been mixing monitors for for smaller acts that that capital have been looking after and so really it was just one thing building on another and then i was mixing more and more smaller acts and then when kylie's monitor engineer who um lives in australia when he when there was like a one off gig or something didn't make sense for him to come over to Europe for a, a TV performance or something like that, that I would step in and, and, and mix. And so gradually things were just, you know, starting to, to progress that way. Yeah. So monitor engineering, uh, I guess, involves a lot of connecting with the with the band. Uh, you got to be their kind of point person. So can you tell us a bit about that and uh, building those relationships mm. and kind of anticipating their needs and all that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is definitely a, um, it's a different skill set from, from say, mixing front of house, for sure. Um, there's not one that's better or more skillful than the other. They're just different skill sets. And yeah, there's a lot of relationship stuff with, with a monitor engineer that the band have got to feel that you've got their back they've got to know that you've got their eyes on them they've got to feel they can trust you because they are kind of naked up there they are totally reliant on you for what they can hear and you make a mistake it's not you that's standing in the middle of the stage looking like a a fool it's them so they've 
really got to be able to trust you. And so I, I find that the best way is just to be, you know, consistent with how you show up, with, with how you mix, with how you do things. And when you first greet them, you know, first impressions are a big deal. Even if you feel nervous or you feel starstruck or whatever, you've kind of got to learn to manage that within yourself and not let that show and um, present a you know a calm confident exterior to them that they feel that kind of grounded with you mm-hmm. and then it's from from then on it's it's it really is about dialogue it not every single act you work with you're going to connect with I've had a, a couple probably only a couple um, but that just didn't you know the face didn't fit you know technically everything was fine but you don't connect with every human that you work with and sometimes it doesn't feel right and that's fine. That, that happens. But um, generally, I find, you know, by just being confident and consistent and actually really trying to understand what somebody's getting at when they're talking to you. And if you don't understand, not blagging it, but saying, can you tell me more about what, what you mean by that? You know, if they want more blue, <laughs> that would be the kind of classic thing. You're right. um, tell me more about what blue feels like, that kind of thing. And really, really engaging in a dialogue and working with them because it's a co-creation. Yeah, and, and I find that kind of approach is what works. Did it always come naturally or was it just something that kind of developed like your relationship working with artists? I was lucky enough to observe some really fantastic engineers. Um, so the person who actually taught me how to mix monitors um, was a guy called Fred Jackson, uh, Bruce Springsteen and Patti LaBelle's monitor engineer. So from the get-go, he, he was working at RJ Jones for a while. So in my pre-freelance years, he taught me both the technical and soft skills of doing monitors. So that was hugely beneficial. And Rob Matheson, who I'd teched for on Kylie and who I you know, was, was depping for over the years. I, you know, he is very, very skillful of that. So I was observing him and, you know, other people that I've teched for over the years. It was just interesting to see how they interacted, what made a good monitor engineer, what worked and where did it, where was their conflict and where were things smooth? And so it's kind of, yeah, observation. It, yeah, monitor engineering is so much about observation as well as listening. You're absolutely right. It's, you know, having that relationship with the people and getting to learn how they interpret what they're looking for. It's, yeah, you have such a unique relationship that's definitely not what it is for front of house. Yeah. I mean, what I do, what I do feel really, I mean, we all pick our gigs, but I feel bad for front of house people because everybody in that arena has an opinion. The people I'm looking for, they are totally entitled to that opinion. It's their mix. They can have whatever they want. Whereas when you're dealing with, you know, anything from 500 to you know, 100,000 people's opinions. That's a <laughs> tall order. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. So <laughs> Can't please everyone. But uh, at least for monitors, you know that you can please each person that's on that stage. You've got a better shot at it at least. Yeah. Can you tell us about um, coming into yoga or your yoga discovery? My yoga discovery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, my husband is Australian, Chris Pine. He's a front of house engineer. He's actually was Kylie's front of house engineer for many years. So that's how we met and um he's an Aussie and we were spending some time in Brisbane and we had a gym membership that included all of the classes and so I thought I'm just going to try different things and I tried Pilates and so it's like it's okay it obviously works I can feel it stuff, <laughs> but it didn't yeah it's all right it didn't light me up and then the following day I tried yoga and it was love at first down dog I just felt like I'd come home and I was, you know, ran home that you know, after the class. I was like, I found my thing. Well, I found another thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
um, and just was completely obsessed from that day. And weirdly, the teacher at the end of that first class came over and said, are you sure that was your first class? I said, yeah, definitely. I've never done it before. And she's like, this is going to sound crazy and I apologise, but I have a really strong feeling you're going to teach one day. I was like, okay, that is kind of strange. <laughs> but I, I was then going to pretty much every class she taught. I was going every day. I was just obsessed from day one and just loved how it made me feel and got enough uh, mat hours under my belt that I was started practicing at home. And next time I went on tour, I took my yoga mat with me and was doing my own practice in hotel rooms on days off. And then that started to creep into doing it on show days as well. You know, if I'd, I'd get off the bus and, you know, my, my normal routine was to go find a dressing room and have a shower before I started work. Well, then I was getting up like an hour earlier, taking my mat with me, finding a dressing room, doing an hour of yoga and then having a shower. Um, and, you know, over, over a course of years, you know, people saw me doing this. And then the production manager on Westlife, um, who has become a good friend of mine and, and has got very into yoga as a result, as a woman called Karen Ringland. And she uh, asked me if I would teach her and the production assistant some yoga. And I was like, well, I'm not trained to teach, but I can kind of show you some stuff. And if you promise to, you know, not to do anything dumb that doesn't feel good in your body, then we can, yeah, but I'm not insured or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and it was fun. And I was like, yeah, this, this has got something to it. And she and the, her production assistant were like, you should definitely do a teacher training. So I was like, okay, well, I've been thinking about it anyway, just to kind of get more knowledge for myself, really, just to go a bit deeper. And so I decided to go and do it, not really knowing whether I was going to teach or not. But then after I came back from doing that later on that year, the next tour I went on, chatting to people, they, they knew that I'd been and done that. And they were like, would you teach us? Like, you know, the band was saying, would you teach us, you know, after soundcheck or something? I was like, okay, we can do that. Um, and it just kind of grew from there. And so I, I, I've taught on pretty much every tour I've done in the last 10 years or so. And yeah, I went back and did my uh, a more advanced training a few years later, and then was still thirsty for more. So then embarked on a, a training that spanned three years um, that was uh, in yoga therapy, which was a very much more in-depth uh, training on, you know, using yoga you work individually with a single person or sometimes with a small group of people with a particular issue to address, but generally with one person. And it's about addressing all aspects of their life far beyond just the physical. It's, uh, you know, it sees people very much as a, as a, the whole human, not just, you know, a sore knee or whatever. It's uh, about <laughs> addressing a whole lifestyle. And I found that really fascinating. So yeah, that's kind of become my side hustle, I guess. I just learned about yoga therapy right now. It's <laughs> so interesting. How how would you recommend, like, what are some tips and techniques for um, for people, for technicians out on the road to actually implement um, doing yoga in their normal routine? Mm, good question. Um, I think you do, it, it is helpful if you can have some in-person guidance initially. If you can get to a beginner's course between tours you know what you know while you're at home um yes there's a lot of great online content out there but somebody can't obviously tell in that situation if you're getting into bad habits posturally i mean if you go to live classes online that's different it's not the same as in person but it's better than nothing but i think just incorporating just little things into your day you know it's yes i go and do an hour or more in the mornings but i'm obsessed and i've been doing it for years but <laughs> but even just mm -hmm. you know if you've just got a little five minute ten minute routine that you do at the start of the day you know if you just sit 
and breathe for a few minutes and then there's you know maybe a couple of sun salutations a, a couple of stretches that you like to do that's a really good place to start because then you start to realize oh okay well this kind of gets me out of my head and into my body and I feel calmer when I do it so actually I don't have to be on the mat to do it there's a breathing technique I can use that makes me feel calmer yoga is, is very much more than just you know stretching and physical stuff but when we stretch a muscle it's like when a cat or dog stretches they do that to, to kind of shake off any any stress or they do it when they get up from a sleep and it puts them in their, the relaxation response. You don't see an animal doing that when they're wound up fight or flight. So if we stretch out and it, it puts us in that relaxation response. So it's it's this really powerful tool that we've got with us all the time and we're not hacking the system as much as we could. <laughs> How do you envision yoga, I guess, changing the lifestyles of individuals who are touring? Uh, well, I can only speak from my own experience, but it gradually brought me into a much healthier way, a much more sustainable way of touring um, and a healthier lifestyle generally. It's, it's led me to look after myself as a whole, physically, yes, but also my mental health, my energy, being a little bit more conscious about when I need to step back and, to, and take time alone to recharge my batteries, not burning the candle at both ends so much. And I think it just, it's its kind of a drip, drip, drip effect. You notice that doing this little thing for yourself makes you feel better. And it, it tends to lead you down a path of, okay, well, how much better could I feel? What else could change? And I think that's the way that we can be sustainable as, as humans in the touring industry, because, you know, the whole, uh, the old school way of you know the whole sex drugs rock and roll image of touring you know it's fun if you're in a band if you're if you're the ones on stage it's fun if you're in you know your 20s or whatever but realistically if you want to continue to do this um into your 40s 50s 60s and beyond it's not sustainable and you have to start to look after yourself better and if you do look after yourself well it's entirely possible to to do this you know i know people who are in touring in the 70s so it's entirely possible for it to be a lifelong career, but you do have to look after the vehicle. So you noticed a distinct difference then uh, when you started incorporating yoga into your life. Like, so can you recall like some of those pre-tours, pre-yoga tours and how? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I have a very different lifestyle now. Back then, uh, yeah, if, if it was going, I did it. Um, I, uh, it was a less measured way of being, I suppose, would be the, the best way to describe it. It was, I didn't always kind of have my own back. You know, I was never, was never ever drinking, you know, during the work period, but, you know, on a, before a day off and things like that, you know, wrecking a day off for myself because I'd wake up on the day off with a hangover. And so not then really recharging my batteries by having a nice, enjoyable, restful day off, but just from, you know, recovering and then feeling relieved on the next work day that I felt normal again. You know, that doesn't happen anymore now. And I have a day off. It's a, I have a really enjoyable, restful day off and do things that actually increase my energy and increase my well-being rather than just recovering from the damage <laughs> um and yeah I mean my diet wasn't great before I didn't do the little things as well like nowadays I'm very conscious about getting out for, for fresh air and daylight particularly on something like an arena or a theatre tour where you're indoors your whole working day you know that the, the whole SAD thing is is real and you know humans are meant to have daylight we have our circadian rhythm so i make sure now that in the afternoon after sound check or you know whenever is appropriate I will get outside even if it's just standing outside the venue for five minutes to take some get some fresh air or ideally you know to go for a walk for half an hour and just do those sorts of things for myself it wouldn't have occurred to me to do 20 years ago and now I'm 
I, I take care of myself much better on, on all aspects. Yeah, man, I hear you. Like right now, uh, the last few years I've been working in a dark theater mm. and I find that it kind of, it, it definitely drains me, uh, being there. But when I find myself just on a break, I'm like, okay, Tori, just get outside, do a few minute walk. It always just rejuvenates me. So. Yeah. We're, we're, we're working with the, you know, a huge amount of technology and you know there's all, all of the you know the electromagnetic fields that we're surrounded by in that environment and especially if we're in the dark it's a it's a totally artificial environment and it's what we need to do to create what we're trying to create but there has to be a balance that would be the biggest buzzword I guess for me would be that this has brought balance to my life what are you doing now? Like, how has, um, I guess, your career been impacted by COVID and how is it kind of coming back? Well, yeah, I mean, like we all were, I was about to start a tour back in April, March or April 19. And then we heard that the first few shows wouldn't be happening, but everything would probably be okay and again in a month. And then the first leg wouldn't be happening. And, and so it went on and the whole thing got pulled like everybody's did. And yeah, basically, I didn't work for, I guess, 20 months. And then I went over to the UK in June for the resumption of, of, of what's going to be some shows that we were supposed to be doing at Wembley Stadium. And then unfortunately, 48 hours after I landed in London, <laughs> that got pulled. <laughs> so there I was, uh, <laughs> 20,000 uh, kilometres from home. But that was okay. I, I got to see all my folks and my tribe. And, you know, my music industry life is very much UK based. I don't really do much work in that respect in Australia. And I was lucky enough to be able to pick up some other work. And that was fantastic and also terrifying at the same time because after 20 months without touching a mixing console, I was way, way out of practice. You know, but before I was supposed to go on the road in early 19, I'd already had a few months off intentionally taking a break between tours. So, uh. yeah. <laughs> um, and so the company that had been um, supplying the equipment for the shows that we were going to do had already built the, all of the system for me. And so I called them and said, look, you know, obviously the whole thing has been pulled, but could I come in and just have a play around on the console? We were using some new software um, and, and just refresh my my memory and try and remember how I do this monitor engineering thing. <laughs> and they were happy for me to do that because they said it would feel slightly less futile that they'd spent all this time putting it together. And so, bless them, they let me, they welcomed me into their place for a week. And I just went and spent five days in a room with some multi-track recordings, remembering how to do my job. You know, it's, it's a very short space of time before our neural pathways start to atrophy if they're not used. So just remembering my normal workflow of how, you know, my normal shortcuts, the way I would normally do things and sort of trying to put myself into a, a mental rehearsal scenario. It's like, okay, so the bass player wants more reverb on the snare go <laughs> and I was like I was slow man it took me a while on day three I was thinking I am actually really glad I don't have a band in front of me tomorrow because I'm not there yet I'm not ready probably took me five days till I felt like I was ready to have a band in front of me again and so then the first time when I actually did have a band in front of me again was really quite emotional you know even just working with multi-track recordings was the first time I faded up the kick drum I was like oh my god <laughs> I fully welled up um, and that was really exciting and then to do it for real um, was phenomenal but it, it takes a while to come back yeah, I've heard that a lot from a lot of people in our industry. It's just, you know, I don't want to say you take it for granted what, you know, you've been doing for so long, but then once you get back into it, you're like, oh my gosh, like literally you said you know, it could be 18, 20 months 
here you are, you're back and they expect you to be you, but then you're like, wait a minute, let me find me again. It's like, it's like those old neural pathways, those roads in your brain, they still exist, but they've been grown over by the undergrowth and you've got to clear the undergrowth and <laughs> find the roads. I didn't even consider that. I didn't consider that everyone would get rusty. Yeah. And emotional. I, I like the emotional part. I think that's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> and sad also that, you know, everyone was kept out of it for so long. Like, what did you get up to for those months? Well, I had been working on um, a book about yoga that I was kind of, I guess, two thirds of the way through writing it. And so the, the first th- obvious thing to do was to finish that. Cause it's like, if I don't finish it now, I have no excuse. <laughs> so I finished that, got that published. And so that was kind of my main, my, my big thing. And that was a journey because I kind of thought once I'd written it, that would be fairly straightforward, but actually the editing took almost as long as the writing, which I hadn't been expecting, but I was really, really happy that I did that. I did kind of go into hyper-controlling, overproductive mode a lot and try to schedule myself with an actual timetable every day, which just made me miserable. And I realized after about a month that it made me miserable, so I stopped doing that. Um, (laughs) I taught yoga online a lot. I saw individuals, you know, online uh, for yoga therapy. So that became a good fallback and, you know, obviously not even close to touring money, but enough to keep the lights on. So that that was a big help. We adopted a cat which was lovely. Yay. What's your cat's name? Smokey. (laughs) Smokey, I have shadow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they're such a comfort, aren't they? They're great. Yeah. But definitely yoga too. I've discovered yoga. So I want to take one of your classes. Can we do a sound girls class? (laughs) Yeah. Let's do a sound girls class. I have things I need to learn. (laughs) Did you try to do that? Yeah, we can chat about that. Yeah, for sure. Let's, Let's see what we can do. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, because I think it's just really awesome how you bring it to tours. And I think that's kind of like a perfect place for it, actually. It's partly self-interest on my part because a relaxed happy <laughs> band makes my life a lot easier. <laughs> True. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> yeah. I'm very careful not to push it on anybody. I'd never actually go into a tour saying, hey, we can do yoga. I wait for people that, you know, people generally know that that's what I do. And so I wait for people to come to me and generally don't get beyond about the first afternoon of rehearsals before about five people have said, can we do some yoga on the tour? Oh, wow. And it's interesting to see who gradually starts to join in because you, you can see the people that you, yeah, you're going to ask me and I think you're going to ask me. And then once people see the group starting to happen and, you know, they see you disappearing off to a dressing room after sound checks and coming out looking out all blissed out, people start going, oh, could, is that something I could try? Uh, you know, the people that you perhaps wouldn't expect so much. So it's really interesting to see who gets involved. You just build a big crowd by the end. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who was hard? Who was a hard sell? I mean, it's a difficult time for some members of crew because we normally do it in the afternoon and for some people they're busy then. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's some people who perhaps think that it's all about bendy people in lycra. <laughs> that generally is the hardest sell. People who just have a misconception that, um, you know, oh, I can't do yoga because I'm not flexible. It's like, well, can, are you breathing right now? Because if you can breathe, you can do yoga. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of trying to shift people's headspace of what it's about. So in your book, um, what what do you highlight? Yeah, walk us through what we could find in your book. So it's called Yoga Journey, A Contemporary Guide to a Timeless Tradition. And it's it's basically about yoga beyond the postures because this this absolute the postures are fabulous. It's a brilliant way of getting us into our bodies and calming our nervous systems and it's our bodies are our interface with the world. And there's a lot more to it um, than that. And so I wanted to kind of demystify all of the 
fantastically rich philosophy that's behind yoga that for me, it just makes life easier. And I just wanted to make it very practical, very relevant to modern, normal, everyday life without getting um, bogged down in in what people can perceive as being uh, very dense, incomprehensible, um, you know, Sanskrit and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to, without dumbing it down, make it accessible and relevant to anybody who's kind of got an interest in yoga and and suspects there might be more to it and how else can it help me and what what is there you know if I scratch the surface what else is underneath there and so I just basically walk through the the basics of of yoga philosophy and and different yoga practices that you might come across and what they do and how they're relevant to a to a normal 21st century life congrats for making a book that's amazing that's really cool yeah where, where is it available just for our interested listeners it's available on Amazon, on, on all Amazon worldwide. Yeah, no, yoga is so cool. And I, I like that you make it really accessible. Um, so I'm very intrigued. Yeah, definitely check that out. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, good. Because I, I genuinely believe that there is something in it for everyone. You know, there's so many different ways of bringing it into life. And it does, it, it genuinely just is a tool that it makes life easier. Why, why wouldn't you want that? It makes you feel better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. You know, and I feel like, you know, sometimes you don't realize that you could really benefit from it until you get to a place per se of desperation where it's like, okay, my body is shutting down or there's a ton of stress going on in my life or, you know, my eating habits aren't good, whatever it is, you know, or just even the pandemic, but it's just like everything builds up, but you don't realize that this could be so helpful to you until you actually really need it sometimes. Definitely. Yeah. Can you tell us about your um, mental health first aider training? Are you currently doing that right now? Um, I am about to start that. So that is, um, it's facilitated by a charity based in the UK called Backup. They are uh, in collaboration with uh, the Mental Health First Aid organisation and supported by another organisation called We Need Crew, who is, which is headed up by Karen Ringland, who was the lady, the production manager who got me to start teaching yoga. Uh, so that's a nice full circle. Uh, her and her, her colleague, Alice Marcin, um, are, have this organisation called We Need Crew that raises funds for backup to facilitate this mental health first aid training. And there's bursaries available for um, crew members who want to do that training. And so I've enrolled. And basically the idea is that just like you have a first aider, a physical first aider on a tour or in any workplace, who can help if somebody hurts themselves. A mental health first aider, the aim is to have one, at least one, on every tour. So that if somebody's struggling, there's somebody safe that they know they can go and talk to. And it made perfect sense. I I find a lot of people tend to come and chat to me anyway. I think partially, historically, it's because being female, uh, to be honest, I think guys maybe sometimes feel it's easier to talk to a woman rather than one of their male peers. I, you know, so I, I was finding people would come and chat to me prior to me doing all the yoga stuff. And then more so once I started teaching and all the rest of it, I was finding people would generally gravitate towards me if they felt they needed to, to have a chat about something that was bothering them. So it made perfect sense. And I think if we can have somebody like that on every tour that, you know, it's in the tour book, it's, it's kind of it's on the day sheet or whatever if, you, if you're struggling come and make a time to chat to whoever. I think that 
is a really positive move in looking after people's mental health on the road because it can get tough out there. You know, you're away for long periods of time or, you know, for all sorts of different reasons. And I think it's it's interesting that we would go to a doctor without thinking twice if we hurt ourselves physically, mm-hmm. for, you know, for something like a flesh wound or a, or a bone or a joint, uh, or you felt unwell, you wouldn't think twice about it. You would get it sorted out. Whereas our brains, our heads, which are the most complex piece of biology in the mm. universe, um, we expect them just to chug along by themselves without any any maintenance. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I, I totally agree. You know, just the fact that, you know, you're taking care of the whole person and it's not just about the work. It's, yeah, it you have to take care of you. And the work will be better for it when it's everyone's true. doing well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. If you've got people who are feeling, you know, mentally okay and they're they're, they're feeling balanced and they're, they're not feeling overstressed, or even just knowing there's somebody that you can talk to is just kind of knowing where the door is, knowing where the release valve is. Just having that knowledge by itself can be really empowering. It's such a good idea. I like the normalization of uh, getting help for everything. There is a more more awareness now of what we've, what everybody on the planet has been through the last couple of years, and our industry has suffered so badly. And I think it has become more normal to talk about how we're struggling with it. And so I think like now is the perfect time. Let's let's take something good from you know everything that, that has been going down and go. Okay, well. We're talking about this stuff now. Let's keep talking about this stuff because just because yeah. the pandemic hopefully you know resolves and things get back to normal doesn't mean people aren't still going to have mental health struggles. Mm. So. so moving forward, what advice do you have for people who are touring and you know are looking to go into that field? And from your experience, both on the audio side and on the holistic side. Well, I think there are, you know, there's a few different ways you can you can get into it. You know, there's obviously the, the working at a venue uh, route for getting into into live shows, and then the other major route would be, you know, going down the, the PA company um, pathway. I have to say that really did work for me. You know, everybody in touring is going to have a different story of how they did it and what worked for them. But I think if you can connect with a PA company and learn the craft from the ground up, even if you've got a college education. I do think that's incredibly valuable because, you know, even even with a, a college degree, you, you're not going to walk in and be mixing gigs on your first week mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really a fabulous way of making a living. And so as long as you're realistic about how long it takes to get to perhaps where the ultimate goal is for you, you know, whether that's, you know, standing in the middle of a stadium, mixing front of house or whatever, um, or hanging a huge PA system or whether it's touring around with smaller, more niche acts, you know, they've all got huge value. But I think be realistic about the amount of work that's involved, the amount of dedication that's involved. Um, It is a hard way of making a living, but boy, is it fun. It's really fun. Mm. So yeah, be realistic and be prepared to listen to people that have been doing it a lot longer than you. Allow yourself to be a beginner. Allow yourself to, to not know. And exactly what you said, Katie, there are no stupid questions. There are going to be some people who are better to ask than others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ask, ask the questions. And honestly, what Carrie's created and, and with, with Sound Girls is so fantastic that we have this place for people to come together and share our experiences and, and you know, the people who are beginning to become aware that it's a, a potential career, right up to people who've been doing it for decades 
we can all just chat about it. I think it's fantastic to use the resources that are out there. Agreed. Great advice. Can I actually ask when you said it's so fun, what comes to mind when you just think of like a moment in your career that you're like, this is why I do it. This is the bee's knees. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I love a big gig. I mean, I love the smaller ones too, but I, I cannot deny when I'm mixing a stadium gig, I have the, oh my God, a <laughs> moment. And I'll have a moment when I'll look out at the, the crowd, you know, like maybe just before the band walk on stage. I'm like, holy hell, this is something else. I just feel like my heart just like swells with excitement. And, and then you get back on with the job because a stadium gig, as far as a monitor engineer is concerned, is no different from being in, in the tiniest, tiniest club. If you get caught up in that, oh, my God, there's 90,000 people out there. That's when it goes wrong. So then you just go back to right. normal check throughs before the show and you just do your normal gig um but yeah allowing yourself those little moments of yeah this is and then there's the travel you know you, you get to be in some really cool places on days off um you know i got to celebrate my 39th birthday on the great wall of china that's amazing there's things like that even on a not outwardly amazing day just the camaraderie that you have with the people around you you know most people on cruise yes there's people who are perhaps less easy to get on with than others sometimes. But for the most part, I find most crew folk are a good bunch of people because you have to be professional getter honours. We're all living together in close quarters and people who don't play nicely with others tend to get weeded out. And so most crew folk are pretty pretty good sorts and we're, you know, a good bunch of people. And it's, it's just fun to, you know, you get to do this cool creative thing of putting shows on every day with a bunch of your mates. I mean... <laughs> For me, it doesn't get yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. It sounds awesome. You're so great. Thank you so much for, like, I'm just so happy we got to talk to you because this is really fun. So glad we were able to. I was taking a few tries to get this together. That's okay. It worked out. <laughs> really appreciate you having me on. It's been really fun to chat to you both. I guess one last question. Um, where can people find you on social media? Okay, so I'm on Instagram, rock and roll underscore yogi, rock and roll rather than rock and roll. Um, and I'm on Facebook, uh, same, same thing, rock and roll yogi. Yes, thank you, rock and roll yogi. You were a delight. And uh, hopefully people will uh, follow you and buy your book. <laughs> yeah, Yoga Journey, a contemporary guide to a timeless tradition. It's available on Amazon. <laughs> Shameless plug. Y'all, you need to go buy it. And then we'll all just be much calmer, less stressed, and at peace with ourselves. Very balanced touring world. <laughs> Indeed. What more can we ask for? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. The first annual Soundgirls virtual conference is coming up December 4th and 5th. Two days of sessions in post-production, live sound, recording arts, film and TV sound, broadcast, and more. Plenty of networking and mentoring opportunities. For more information on the Soundgirls virtual conference, check out the events tab at soundgirls.org. And if you need financial assistance to attend the event, please let us know by emailing soundgirls at soundgirls.org. Grab your tickets today. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Check out soundgirls.org for more information.